Now, back in the old days, there used to be this one prevailing ideology in the world of motorsport. It was race on Sunday and sell on Monday. But considering that in the modern times, how many cars would you think that Ferrari would sell in the in the world of Formula One or just around the world, in fact, this whole weekend after what's happened in Azerbaijan? Think about that. But that's not the major question that we're going to answer this weekend on the Inside Line F1 podcast because there's so much of other stuff to talk about, including who do we think would have won this race and why did Sergio Perez not end up winning this one? Because he was the one who had the track position beforehand, didn't he? So more on that, more on Mercedes and purposing and what exactly is going on, who are our eight sleep performers of the weekend. And also, we have a special stats review segment from F1 Stats Guru coming up right here on the Azerbaijan GP Review on the Inside Line F1 podcast and Pitch the Podium. Let's begin. Hey folks, welcome back in. My name is Somal Arora. I am joined by Kunal Shah, the former marketing head of the Force India F1 team, Baku Kunal, Baku, that's all I have to say. I, I love this place. It just ends up producing so much of drama at all times. And I suppose it has created another sense of drama in the Ferrari boardroom right now. Because how do you even handle a situation like this? Firstly, I have to ask you, is it really well done, Baku? Let's go yeah. ahead and rate the hey, race. There we are. I knew this was coming at some point. But no, to be honest, uh, a solid seven in my opinion. It could have done more. Uh, we could have had some more drama towards the end. It would have, of course, been lovely to see Charles Leclerc competing. And we shall discuss more on what would have happened had he not DNF'd. But yeah, seven for me, pretty much decent in a way. It's not, it's not a boring way to spend two hours. But what would you rank it as? Well, I would rank it as a low three or just about reaching a four. Because, you know, there was a race with no red flags. Bern Maylander, the driver who would have, you know, who normally, you know, participates in the race in Baku with an 80% probability. That's how high the safety car probability was. There was no safety car. And of course, I don't mean to say that we need safety cars to sort of add things to the mix and make it more entertaining. But to me, it just seemed that the race was you know, lacking a little bit. And then, of course, lacking a lot after the Ferraris had, you know, disappeared from the scene. I mean, there was one point of time where GP and Max Verstappen were discussing things like, okay, maybe you shouldn't use the DRS. And okay, Max, maybe you should drive. Let's discuss how slow can we drive and still win the Azerbaijan Grand Prix, right? And there is an old saying in the world of motorsport, and I love it. It's It's like, winning the race at the slowest possible pace. And that's what Max Verstappen did with his, uh, you know, with his teammate Sergio Perez in number two at the race yesterday, Samuel. So that's where my rating also stands. Yeah, but critically, he was slow, but not slow enough because he ended up passing Sergio Perez. And we shall come to Ferrari in a minute, Canal. but it's a very interesting question that's just bobbling around in my mind about why did Sergio Perez not end up winning this race? And believe it or not, from all the reports that are coming out, from all the journalists and from all the experts of sorts in the world, everyone is saying, or rather at least inclining towards the fact that Sergio Perez cooked up his tyres. Sergio Perez of all people, that this is, is bonkers, the way that's happening. Would you kind of say that this is something that really happened? Because his pace in the second half of the race really seemed to dip down badly. I would say that's exactly what happened. Firstly, you know, the VSC that was deployed, he wanted to pit in the VSC. Red Bull wanted him to put pit 
in the first VSC, right? But what happened is the the message to him came a second too late. He had already crossed the pit entry uh, lane. So then he couldn't end up coming. And he actually uh, said post-race that it was a miscommunication why we actually did not pit under the VSC, right? So that's the first thing that happened. The second thing that happened, Sommel, was that he actually ran at a very, very fast pace in the opening laps because he wanted to break away from Charles's uh, DRS. So I think by the fourth lap or something, he was two point something seconds ahead. So he really built up that gap. And then when that VSC happened, he, he cooled his tires down a little too much, which is why he ended up not having the tires uh, when he needed to have them and which is where the pace drop came in and which is also where Red Bull, uh, you know, chose to just uh, go ahead and win the race with Max Verstappen because they said we are going to have have a one-two uh, race finish, especially uh, at a time when Ferrari are not finishing. And of course, you know, Verstappen being ahead of uh, Perez is great for the championship, especially with the whole number one, number two driver thing. Uh, you know, at least at the Red Bull end. But that's pretty much what happened with uh, Checo Perez. And mind you, he actually snatched the race lead from Charles Leclerc right at the very beginning of the race. I think he made a fantastic start to take the lead. I think it's probably the first time that I ever saw Sergio Perez leading lap one of a race. I was like, hey, Checo, come on, let's do this. But by the time we came to the middle of the race, that kind of faded out. And of course, there's a sense of excitement attached to Checo because he doesn't win that much. It's not that I don't like Max Verstappen, but the point is there was a certain novelty around it that suddenly faded away. But I was wondering at some point, and this discussion actually popped up between myself and my dad, because both of Sergio Perez's stops, again, two seconds longer than what they were ideally meant to be. Perez at the end also was told no fighting. Now, on plain observation, that might look like team orders, but there was more to it, Kunal, because as we discussed, his pace was certainly being compromised. And had, let's say, Leclerc been there on track, it would have been better to have someone shielding off because Perez at the end, his performance dropped off badly. He was, what, 17 seconds off at the end or something? Yes, he did. And after a point, you know, they were just cruising around, bringing their cars home. And uh, we should also discuss why Perez wanted to pit under the VSC, why the Ferraris actually pit under the VSC, because what the Azerbaijan Grand Prix, uh, you know, what was happening at that point of time when the VSC happened is suddenly we had the top two teams uh, using different race strategies to try and win the race. Red Bull choosing to not pit under the VSC, whereas Ferrari choosing to pit under the VSC. So clearly it was like, okay, which strategy is eventually going to give uh, the race win? And, you know, pitting under the VSC would have meant saving 10 seconds of stoppage time, which in Formula One terms is extremely high. And that's what Charles Leclerc wanted to do. Uh, or sorry, Charles Leclerc did do and Perez wanted to do. Now, this is also probably a good place to ask why Max Verstappen actually didn't end up pitting under the VSC because Max was trying to attack Charles uh, in the opening stages of the race, but he was not able to make a move uh, despite the Red Bull having uh, higher speeds at the end of that massive long straight sommel, right? So had uh, you know had Max also. Uh, pitted under the VSC uh, behind Charles Leclerc, there's a good chance he would have just been chasing Leclerc eventually throughout the whole race and not been able to make that move, right? Which is why Red Bull actually told Max to do the opposite of what Charles did, to try and give him a tire offset, to try and give him a different strategy 
to to jump Charles Leclerc. Now, of course, by the end of it all, by by the end of lap twenty, it didn't really matter what strategy Red Bull was on and what what strategy Ferrari employed, uh, because we literally did not have a race at our hands. And for once, it seemed like Ferrari did make the right call, bringing Charles in. Uh, you know, at the first VSC. Although, Samuel, I think I think maybe you have a different view on that, don't you? Yeah, did they? Because when you judge how the other drivers around Charles Leclerc performed, I mean, drivers who also had a similar strategy per se, it seems hard to really tell that if you would have won the race. Again, it, it, it would have been better if we saw this on track. It's, of course, not as objective to speculate. But hear me out for a second, because... Pierre Gasly also pitted at the same time. We also had Lewis Hamilton, George Russell, Sebastian Vettel. Everyone boxed at a similar point of time. And everyone go on from the mediums onto the hard compound tyres, like Charles Leclerc on lap number nine. But the interesting part about that is only, I mean, the, the runners who eventually pitted under the second VSC, they had a better time off, like Russell, like Hamilton. They were able to get past the likes of Gasly and Vettel. Of course, Vettel's spin did not help out, but you get the idea, right? Later on, the hard compound was better. Now, the interesting part is Leclerc, uh, now Red Bull Racing actually, they had two sets of hard compounds and one medium. Ferrari had the opposite. One set of medium, no, two, one set of hard compounds and two set of medium. So if Leclerc would have pitted at the second VSC, assuming that he was on track, he would have come out with the medium compound tires at the end. And now, theoretically, that sounds like fun, right? Softer compounds, less laps to go, final part of the race. This is when he can attack. But if you take a look at what happened to Daniel Ricciardo at the end, he also went to the medium compounds at the very end of the race and struggled with terrible degradation. And his engineer also came on the radio and said, it's not just you, Daniel. We've got a couple of cars around us who also struggled with bad degradation on the mediums towards the end of the race. So this just makes me wonder, Leclerc on the softer compounds at the end, would he really have been as effective? Of course, as I mentioned a couple of minutes ago, it would have been better to see it on the track. But it seems like... Not quite, especially when you consider that the Ferrari didn't really have the pace advantage in the race per se in, in the period that we saw actually as well. That's actually very well explained, Samuel. Thank you very much. It was just how we dissect, uh, you know, tire strategy when it comes to different strategies that teams end up using for a race. And it must also be, you know, uh, pointed out that lap nine was actually not very early to switch onto the harder compound because the harder compound was actually the preferred race tire, right? And even though it was literally halfway through the, the actual uh, gap of what uh, actual ideal lap when teams would have ideally liked it, you know, liked to pit. So to, to me, Ferrari did call it right, but yes, maybe they did not have enough number of hard compound tires, right? Uh, just uh, to make that strategy work after the second VSC. Yeah, and uh, on this point as well, because let's say Leclerc did what, say, someone like Pierre Gasly would have done. Let's say he stayed on the hard compound tires and made those tires last for the entire race. Gasly at the end was, I wouldn't say struggling, but definitely you could see a pace difference. So with Leclerc, it's hard to tell if he would have been able to keep Verstappen and Perez behind. But I suppose that's all just theoretical stuff, right? We can all just speculate on that at this particular moment in time. What's the bigger point is, what would have happened if Ferrari had they not DNF'd? And yeah, why did they DNF in the first place? So to, to just extrapolate a little further from what you said, Samuel, right, that maybe Ferrari uh, would have just stayed onto the hard, but this also allows them to sort of turn around and say uh, that, uh, you know, at the end of the day, 
maybe Red Bull uh, could have also just stayed out or since they had an in- enough of a gap on the Mercedes's, made a second stop and gone a lot more aggressive uh, in terms of chasing Leclerc. But guys, that's exactly where we are right now. We don't know how this race would have sort of transpired. And definitely it was a race that I feel we were all terribly robbed because, hey, when was the last time that we actually saw uh, Charles versus uh, Max battling for the lead of the race and of course Checo Perez in the mix as well because you remember the season started off with all those battles and then suddenly we've literally had nothing you know first Ferrari ran away then Red Bull ran away and then Ferrari have had problems in Spain and and come to think of it Samuel Ferrari have literally cost Charles three back-to-back race wins at least that's what one would have assumed we saw Spain we saw Monaco and then assuming, uh, you know, whichever driver would have won uh, in, in Baku, possibly three, uh, uh, you know, three race wins. Or at least I'll be correct in saying, uh, you know, Azerbaijan because he did retire from the lead of the race. So at least at that point, he was, you know, sort of the race winner. Yeah, it, I've, I've been hearing this approach or this opinion on the internet that Ferrari is just like a midfield team who's been given a great car. Well, I don't think you can say the same right now because it's the card that's been backfiring over the last three races. Uh, one-time strategy, yes, but yeah, terrible how it's playing out. But w- what's actually running in my mind, Kunal, is that we saw out of the five DNFs, uh, DNFers, can you call them that? DNFers, that's a fun term. But out of the five people who DNFed, four of them had Ferrari power units. Now, signs apparently had something to do with his hydraulics. But you see a common link between... Leclerc's DNF, Magnussen's DNF, and, and all the others that also happened. Joguan knew that is. We should also get to him in a second. It's just absurd, right? Ferrari is just putting an axe on its foot. Uh, is the Hindi term, but it literally translates it to just shooting yourself in your own foot. That's that's what's happening right now. That's a good question, Samuel. And you know, the other question to follow it up is can they fix it, right? And this is where it's sort of getting very technical. I I believe. Ferrari will need to detune their engines as we at least approach Canada. It's too short to try and fix it. Just as I believe Mercedes need to fix their chassis, you know, with uh, with Toto Wolf saying that, you know, even by raising the car, the porpoising and bouncing wouldn't stop. Uh, the truth is they need to raise it probably even further. That's what at least a large number of people believe in the paddock. But maybe this is the right time to turn around and play our stats review by F1 stats guru Sundaram. Hey folks, it's time to do the stats review of the Azerbaijan Grand Prix. I'm Sundaram, also known as the F1 stats guru. Let's talk numbers. Now, it's difficult being the pole sitter around Baku because in the six races here, the driver starting from pole has won just twice. And on every other occasion, they've fallen off the podium altogether, just like yesterday. Max Verstappen, who had never stood on the Baku podium before this year, he had a brilliant race and he came P1. Now that means that he's been on the podium in 29 of the 31 circuits that he's raced at. The ones that he's yet to take off are Mugello and Monza. It is a big day for Red Bull because they have now entered the top five of the all-time F1 wins list for a constructor. They're currently placed fifth with the Lotus F1 team with 81 victories. Verstappen and Perez are first and second in the Drivers' Championship, and this is the first time that both Red Bull drivers are leading the standings since Sebastian Vettel and Mark Webber in 2011. George Russell came P3 at the Azerbaijan Grand Prix. 
which means that a mercedes powered car has been on the podium at every baku race so far okay it's time to talk about ferrari now because carlos sainz and charles leclerc had a terrible weekend both of them retiring from the race within the first 20 odd laps leclerc has taken pole in each of the last four races but he's not won any of them and the last driver to do so was juan pablo montoya for the williams team back in 2002 which is 20 years ago Ferrari have also been the first retirement in four of the eight races this season. Ouch! And the last two were mechanical issues. Finally, it's been a difficult. It was a difficult day for Ferrari customer teams as well because there was no Ferrari-powered car at all in the top ten. That was the stats review. I'm Sundaram. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter under the name F1 Stats Guru. I'll catch you guys soon. Welcome back, folks. And wow, it's always so much fun to listen to Sundaram and the stats that he's got. So so intriguing at all times, and I, I just want to discuss that a little bit further, Kunal. At the point that you mentioned about Mercedes, what if they just end up with a truck? I mean, later on in the season, like like a proper Land Rover or something of sorts, because they come up with a car that's very high. But that discussion we shall get to in a second. Because first up, we have to go to the eight sleep performers of the weekend, and that's something very very interesting. Because I've got a completely wild range of picks, and for the first time, there's no one from the top of the grid to kind of talk about. Because as you mentioned, it barely was a race over there. But I just for a second want to talk about Zhou Guanyu because in the middle of the race, he was also again another Ferrari powered car that. didn't quite have the opportunity to finish the race but he was doing extremely well mind you he didn't quite outqualify Valtteri Bottas but in all practice sessions he looked a bit faster uh, Bottas was struggling which is with his car which is a bit strange but Jo was very comfortably in the top 10 i mean if anything he could have ended up scoring a lot of points uh, here today maybe a couple at the max so his race weekend was surprisingly different for a pay driver which is again good to see right good to see progress in a way In fact, Samuel, I have to correct you, and I don't blame you for getting this wrong. But it was the first time Joe Guan Yu uh, qualified ahead of Valtteri Bottas, oh. right? And he did show some some interesting pace out there, especially against Bottas, and seemed like the quicker Alfa Romeo driver, despite you know Baku being a Bottas circuit and all of that from his Mercedes days. So yes, I would say Joe was definitely uh, you know one of the drivers on the eight sleep uh, performers of the race. It was unfortunate that he had a technical retirement again, and now he's just down to one point finish that he had in Aust- uh, in Bahrain. at the start of the season did you just notice i said australia because i have grown up in that era where australia was always the first race of yep. the season yes yeah but talking of alteri bottas it was only the second time in eight races that he has not scored a point in a grand prix so bottas was just not there for some reason but we have to talk about i would say i would put sebastian fettel clearly in that category because you know sebastian i can't remember when last i you know in the last uh, couple of seasons have seen him uh, be so racy you know he he uh, he was uh, you know overtaking cars which is great he of course did a typical sebastian you know going off and spinning around but that was a very very quick uh, reaction another action and then rejoining off the circuit and you know he actually credited his rallying skills to him participating in the race of champions and you know eventually we're all laughing about it but he also said that had he not had that spin he would have probably finished p5 which again is is very credible given all the str- all the struggles he's had at the start of the season remember he missed 
two races at the start. And then Aston Martin, of course, had a really bad car that they started the season off with as well. And P6 is their best performance together in 2022. Yeah, and I suppose I would just give him extra points for being the eighth league performer of the week just for that spin. Because at that point of the race, we were kind of devoid of any sort of drama per se. And that that turnaround was just fantastic, right? To see him do that. And you're right about that. How racy he was is very incredible to see how Aston Martin, in fact, they were just a lopsided team, right? Because Vettel was so racy at one point. Qualified, I think, P9, got into Q3 again, which is great for Aston Martin considering where they were early in the year. But it's just making me wonder, are we at that stage where Lance Stroll is genuinely costing Aston Martin badly now? Because we, we've seen that Vettel can drag a couple of good performances from this car. So I'm just wondering, the day Aston Martin are really very serious about winning a world championship, they'll probably not have him as their second driver. Not that he's terrible, but the, the difference was alarming per se. You know what? I actually beg to differ because if it wasn't for Lance Stroll... Lawrence Stroll wouldn't have paid all that money to bail out Racing Point in the first You're place. You're right. So. <laughs> That's a good point. I actually forgot about that for a second. That, oh yeah, it's the owner. Uh, but yeah, I mean, objectively, if his real aim is to win a Formula 1 championship, I suppose the asterisk mean that winning it with his son, that, that's what he tries to say, but it's implicit, isn't it? <laughs> and let's remember, he said we're on a five-year journey. This is year two of the five-year journey. Let's see where... All of that goes. But maybe, you know, where Lawrence's money is also going is in building much stronger Formula One cars, given how his son Lance is, you know, always knocking some part of the car around when he takes it out for a stroll. I mean, his was that a qualifying that he had that issue where he put his front wing in and then it didn't break. And then he said, maybe I need to try harder. And then he just went into the wall because... <laughs> some sort of strength testing i know we are we're not always a funny podcast but that's the inside line f1 podcast ladies and gentlemen i think they're about they're, they're kind of sponsored by jcb as well the construction company so maybe that that's also one thing linking that maybe they want to try and be more sturdier more harder and try to break the car better and see how sturdy the aston martin can be but yeah wrong, wrong brand mate we probably that'll be better for something like a tata in india but that's enough on large troll right we, we focus too much on him i think we should also speak about other drivers who did really well and pierre gasly was fantastic this weekend what is it p5 at the end the way things were working out it's just the best performance he's had all season long and considering the bad luck he's been carrying around I think this really could be the race that liberates him and opens up Alpha Tauri in both ways. And pun intended here because of Sonoro's flippy rear wing and how that opened up only partially. But I hope that's not the case with their season right now. Oh, yes, absolutely. Pierre Gasly, even Yuki Sonoda, they would have finished finished P5 and P6 had, you know, Sonoda's rear wing not needed all that duct tape and, and stuff like that because I think uh, both the Alpha Tauris drove a fantastic race in the end. Uh, in fact, Formula One's simulation had suggested that Alpha Tauris race simulation was better uh, than Mercedes and they would have at least had one car finishing ahead of Mercedes. But yes, Pierre Gasly, I would say, uh, and then, you know, Max Verstappen, I mean, you know, they were discussing, should we do 47.0 or 47.5? I mean, that's how relaxed he needed to be uh, during uh, during uh, the race. I mean, Sergio Perez outqualified him, outperformed him in every single session, but the main session when it mattered. But hey, all points down to Red Bull. 
Indeed, yes. And after that, I suppose it'll be fun to discuss what happened in McLaren as well. Because in this race, it was really absurd that we saw Daniel Ricciardo not just be subservient to team orders because he had a say this time out because he was driving fast, which is firstly a good thing to see. Of course, he struggled at the end, as I mentioned, with the degradation, but he was a thorn in Lando Norris's side, which is, I think, something that McLaren would want to see more often because this means that they got a double points finish, which was great. But what was this whole kerfuffle all about in the end, Kunal? About swapping positions, trying them out for one lap, bringing them back again, and they didn't end up swapping positions at the end. It's all just confusing what happened with McLaren. But at the end, what we can say is they kind of finished where their pace was, 8th and ninth. So, fair deal. I mean, a decent weekend for them on the whole. Especially considering that they started P11 and P12, finishing in the points was definitely was what the team said their target was. And they knew that it would be difficult to clear Fernando Alonso, given Alpine's superior top-line speed. But yes, I, I quite liked the team orders and the discussions they were having. And, you know, for once, Daniel was being more gentlemanly, whereas Lando was trying to be the rebel out there. But I think in the end, the team played it fair. Because, you know, in the first part, uh, Ricardo sort of held uh, held himself back. And then in the second part, it was Lando, uh, you know, who was forced to hold back. And the question can be asked is, if they wouldn't have held Ricardo back, could they have gotten uh, Fernando Alonso, right? And the truth is that at that point, they were trying to help Lando Norris overcut, overcut Fernando Alonso. So, you know, they reacted for the moment and maybe uh, the team result would have been the same, just inverted with, uh, you know, Lando Norris being ahead of Ricardo. But I'm glad they played it fair uh, that because Ricardo held back, they asked Lando to hold back. And maybe they also know that, you know, Ricardo just needs a couple of such results where he's backed by the team. Uh, he finish ahead, finishes ahead of of Lando he finishes in the points as well and that sort of just fires the spark up in himself because this was only the second time this season that Daniel Ricciardo actually ended up scoring a point Samuel which is surprising uh, that's not just not just not what we associate with Daniel Ricciardo right so again great to see him back in the points and great to see him happy at the end of the race of course he was holding his back in pain and that should be the next point we discuss. But for Ricciardo, great to see him doing what he's doing right now. I just hope that it kind of continues on onto a race like Canada, where, of course, he has performed so well previously. But that should be a discussion point in the race preview episode, which, will shall, which shall come later. What we should discuss immediately right now is the back issues. Because, as I mentioned, Ricciardo was holding his back, but he was not the most notable name doing so. Lewis Hamilton complaining right in the middle of the race that he had back issues in Wowie. The way he described it at the end was just proper hard and grueling stuff to see how he fought through at the end of it. But what's tough, Kunal, is that I don't think that Mercedes can find a fix I mean, externally. They just have to fix it on their own, like kind of by raising their car, coming up with a different design. From the looks of things, there has been a bit of discussion about teams working together to make maybe make the cars more comfortable. But I think the point remains, right? You can control the porpoising on your car. It's only that you have to sacrifice lap time for it. And I don't think Formula 1 should pass a pass a regulation per se, but everyone needs to have a comfortable ride because essentially it's on how you adapt to it. Red Bull Racing are not facing the same issues. So why should Mercedes be rewarded for just being bad at managing their purposing? That's a very good question, Samal. I think eventually it's going to be about the FIA stepping in to ensure driver safety and long-term health because, yes, Lewis Hamilton was very, very 
evidently and visibly uh, discomforted after the race. But, but you know, when when you see through uh, interviews uh, or in the driver's pen, you saw somebody even like Daniel Ricciardo trying to you know get himself uh, a good twist in his back and Pierre Gasly was you know asking around for a massage and the likes at least that's what the stories are going by but let's put it this way different teams are experiencing different intensity of purposing and car bouncing but that uh, it is being felt probably the worst by the Mercedes drivers or at least they are the most vocal ones right Uh, somebody like Christian Horner believes that teams are using drivers to pressurize the FIA into making changes. Well, that could also be true. Then there's this interview of Lando Norris doing the rounds where he said, if Mercedes want to fix this, they should just raise the right height of the car. And of course, Mercedes don't want to do that because if they raise the right height of the car, they're going to lose performance and then they will no longer be in no man's land. They will be fighting in the super competitive midfield right so this is where the FIA might probably step in and lots of twitter threads doing the rounds about uh you know something called as vertical acceleration measurement and then limiting how much of that uh can be achieved by any particular team through the weekend so this will then uh you know hopefully level the playing field but yes then the question should also be asked that if Mercedes are the only ones facing such a big problem why should the other teams sort of give away? Now, the unfortunate part in all of this, at least to my mind, is that the drivers are the ones who are paying with their health more than anything else. So any solution that is thought of, that is suggested, that is proposed, should be a driver-first approach, Samuel. Yeah, but it's kind of hard to see all the teams reaching a consensus with it because at the end of the day you do need a majority with this sort and there are a few teams like Red Bull and like McLaren that aren't facing this with the same intensity so I just hope that they are able to find a solution but if anything it just means that Mercedes need need eight sleep the most and if you don't know what eight sleep is all about well check out a special episode about sleep fitness on the Inside Line F1 podcast that came out a couple of weeks ago and that shall give you a better idea of exactly what we're talking about right here but the interesting part is pit stops canal because a lot of them were super slow i mentioned sergio perez having a couple of slow pit stops i think lewis hamilton also had one it's just an absurd weekend on the whole in terms of pit stops per se i'm glad we're talking of pit stops samuel and i'm reading out official data the fastest pit stop was actually alonso for alpine was 2.74 seconds which by formula one standards is very very slow and to you know to to compare and contrast, in Monaco, uh, Checo Perez had a 2.3 second pit stop, right? With a 2.7 second pit stop in Monaco, you'd only just make it into the top 10, right? But in Azerbaijan, McLaren with a 3.6 second pit stop for Lando Norris made it into the top 10. So clearly there were issues that the teams were facing. Uh, with their pit stop equipment and the heat. That is my simple assumption. And this is where I would also throw a lot of uh, conspiracy theories out of the window that said uh, that, you know, Red Bull purposely gave slower pit stops 
to Checo Perez to to give Max Verstappen the advantageous position in the race, Samuel. Yeah, when you're in the heat at the moment, that's what it feels like. Oh, they've called him not to fight. Oh, there's a slow pit stop. Come on, Red Bull, you're taking him away. But no, the truth is, Perez was not the faster driver. And in the end, you could say that the best driver and the best car won this weekend in Baku. But what's going to happen next time out in Canada is going to be the major question that we are going to answer on the Inside Line F1 podcast and Pitch the Podium in a couple of days because we come out with the Canadian GP preview episode rather soon. So stay tuned for that. But I hope you enjoyed this episode episode folks and if you did leave a like share this podcast with your friends and family members leave a good rating and we shall see you in a couple of days bye bye have a good time <laughs>